welcome back to Out the Gate. I'm Ben Shaw, the host and producer of the podcast. This week, I sit down with April and Bruce Winship to talk with them about their new book titled Set Sail and Live Your Dream. When Bruce and April were in their 20s, they were newly married, they hopped on a sailboat bound for Tahiti, they crewed on a bunch of different sailboats, and they quickly fell in love with the cruising lifestyle. After that adventure, they returned home to San Francisco and started a family, but the desire to head off cruising was still strong. So they found a boat they could afford and took off again, this time with their two daughters, Kendall and Quincy, aged five and seven. They set sail aboard their catamaran, Chewbacca, towards Mexico with the Bajaja Rally, but they kept going. They spent 10 years cruising Mexico and then Central and South America. During our conversation, they shared with me what they learned as sailors and as a family over that decade. They talked about almost losing their home on a reef, the challenges of homeschooling, and the simple joys of living together on a small boat. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much to both of you for for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Let me just quickly have you both introduce yourself. I'm April Winship, part of the team that wrote this book and went on the adventure of a lifetime. My name is Bruce Winship, and I guess uh, I'm the other half of the team uh, from the sailing vessel Chewbacca. And what's not here are our two daughters who went on the trip with us, Kendall and Quincy Winship. So let's start with the family. When did you leave, and and how old were your daughters? They were five and seven. Kendall was in starting second grade, and I think Quincy would have been starting kindergarten. And we were 42. What what did the girls think? What was their reaction when you told them, hey, by the way, we're going to head off uh, sailing? One of the really nice things about uh, being a parent with young children is sometimes they don't know what's going on. <laughs> uh, our children, uh, we, we had crews prior to this, uh, just as uh, husband and wife when we were younger, we did two years in the South Pacific, liked it so much we came back and we decided this is something we've got to do with a family on our own boat. We started our family and we realized from watching other boats cruising with children that when the children were brand new newborns, we actually saw that, the babies had no clue what they were doing. Uh, They were just brought along as a sack of potatoes, basically. We saw other families that had teenagers that were miserable because they were missing everything that they had built at home. Uh, There really wasn't internet big time in those days that they were craving, but there was just their support structure, their friends. Uh, We realized that when our kids were young enough that they would want to go with us, yet old enough that they could be responsible, they would be great sailors. Um, That happened for us when they were five and seven. First of all, they were waterproof. They knew how to swim competitively, um, but they also were at that age where if you said duck, they knew how to duck. They Mm. didn't look up and say where. Mm -hmm. They were young enough that they could say, we're just going on an adventure just like anybody, other family. They just thought this was normal. Tell me a little bit about the boat itself. 
Chewbacca was the name. Chewbacca. Um, Chewbacca was a fantastic boat. Is a fantastic boat. She's we still were, sailing. Chewbacca is still sailing down in Central America right Good now. Good to hear. We were in the search for a boat, just like almost all boat owners. We had a slight clue of what we wanted, but not a very focused view of what we needed or what we wanted. Uh, we knew we wanted a simple boat. Yeah, Lynn Pardee's rule: keep it simple, huh? That's what got us started. The the Pardee's. Uh, Keep it simple and uh, keep it small. So we needed a boat that was very simple to maintain because we had sailed on other boats that had very confusing systems, not only a lot of systems, but confusing to us as young sailors. So we were looking for a boat that was very simple, almost stark. We also had a dream of sailing on a catamaran. And the problem with that was they were just way over our price range. Hmm. I mean, just just astronomically over our price range, um, especially the cruising catamarans. But uh, we did run into a fellow that was getting transferred to Singapore, had to sell his catamaran. Unfortunately, it was a racing catamaran, had nothing in it, basically an open, stark shell inside. But the price was right. If the price is right, it's either go with something that's stark or not go at all. So we decided to go with a very stark Spartan racing catamaran and turned it into a very Spartan cruising catamaran. And when we're talking Spartan, you were just telling me, um, and April, maybe you can talk about this a little bit. You didn't have integrated water tanks. So that meant what? That meant jerry jugs. And, but we made it work. We had, I think, five or six jerry jugs, and we just lined them up and with a hose that went to the foot pump in the sink. And that was it. And we always knew how much water we had. It kind of determined where we cruised a little bit. We cruised during the rainy season. A lot of people took a break during that time, but it was the time when we knew we could get water. We had no refrigerator, just a giant ice box, which we learned how to kind of pack the 70 pounds of ice in there. And at that time, there were ice houses everywhere. Okay. So you could get ice. That would last us 8, 10 days. And then it was time to go, you know, reprovision again and search for more ice. So, and we had a 9.9 .9 horsepower Yamaha high thrust engine with a big prop on it. What else? We had a ham radio. We had a VHF. But comparatively speaking, we were a pretty simple boat. But again, we didn't spend a lot of time fixing stuff. Yeah, so there's the old adage that cruising is waiting for spare parts in exotic locations. But you guys got away from, from that for the most part. Well, and it's a good thing we did because we had enough on our plate with homeschooling the girls and cleaning the bottom of the boat, taking care of the dinghy, taking care of the dinghy engine, the main engine. I mean, there was enough things to kind of keep yourself busy. And mm -hmm. then schooling took, you know, a better part of a morning. You wrote about that in the book. I love it. You have a, a chapter on homeschooling and, and uh, saying, oh, you thought, you thought it would be one way, and it didn't turn out exactly as you thought. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, we were both really nervous about schooling, and I worked in, in Kendall's kindergarten and first grade class so I could get experience. 
but I thought the kids would absolutely love the idea of their mom teaching them, and I quickly <laughs> learned that they were horrified and not as cooperative as I imagined it to be. And then, you know, when you're cruising in foreign countries, there isn't libraries with a lot of English books. What were the logistics? What were the, did you use a specific curricula? When we first left, I went to Costco and bought the school books for, you know, second grade and kindergarten. Uh And we did those workbooks. Now, the first I would say eight months or so, I did the teaching. But after that, we went to an anchorage that was filled with other families. And Mm. so every day the big topic was, how do you homeschool and do all this? And from listening to other cruisers, we started sharing the teaching, which was fun for the kids because their mom and dad were a team now, And it was a little harder to, I guess, buck both of us. Mm -hmm. And so that made it easier. And then we eventually went to a curriculum called Oak Meadow. That's a homeschooling curriculum like in a box. Uh, I just heard about Oak Meadow from another cruising couple using it now. Yes. And we were fortunate. We found another cruising family that had just finished the grades that our kids were going into So we started off with a used curriculum, see how it went, loved it, kids liked it, had a really good teacher's manual and everything. We could order the curriculum, have it shipped to them, and they brought it to us. And then one time when we went home, we brought one back with us. So we made that work, and I think we just were very consistent with the schooling five days in a row, We had a little flag we made that we would hoist when school was in session, especially when we were in a marina, so that people just couldn't walk over and knock. It just worked out really good. Um, I think we were quite dedicated in making sure that they learned history, English, uh, math, all the sciences, plus when you travel, that's like a virtual classroom. You talk about snorkeling with the girls and identifying the fish and just how much they knew. It was amazing. Yes, and we also read. We read a lot. We read aloud. We read charts. We read guidebooks. We read novels. We, I mean, the kids, when they came back to be put in school, their teachers could I mean, they were reading at adult level. How did that adjustment go back to school for the girls? Uh, coming back to land life from sailing on a boat for 10 years uh, was actually a larger challenge coming home than it was leaving. When we left, the kids were young enough that they knew no different. They mm-hmm. just assumed parents took their kids sailing and... Uh, when the weather changed and the seasons changed, you moved. And Dad always got his money from the ATM machine. So they knew no different. But when they were older, they had minds of their own, and coming home was actually a gamble because yeah. we didn't know how they would adjust to going into a California public school. And uh, you know all the horror stories that we had heard about, uh, we were bracing ourselves for. Kids are very flexible, and uh, we held our breath, put our kids into school, and they 
excelled. They, uh, instead of being the weird boat kids, they were the cool boat kids. They spoke English fluently, of course, but they also spoke Spanish fluently mm. because that's the language they grew up with. Um, I don't want to say they had a, an accent or anything, but they did have a different vernacular because they were not brought up around kids their own age or brought up around kids from the American culture. So that took a little adjusting to, but the only thing that you might notice different about our two kids when they came back, they were 15 and 17, is that in a room, they would be the ones that were talking to the teachers and the kids would be over at the dance because they felt very comfortable with adults. That's actually helped them along, I think, because their teachers enjoyed spending time with them also. I wish the, your daughters were here to, to speak with as well. What are they doing today? Uh, both of our daughters are doing very well. They're, uh, our oldest daughter um, lives up in Carson City, and she went to school at the uh, University of Nevada, Reno, graduated with an English degree, and just as a side note, uh, I said, hey, if you're going to go into teaching, you should really take some Spanish classes, even though you think you're fluent in Spanish. And she went to the professor and said, I, I'd like to take some Spanish lessons because I'm going to be a teacher. And the Spanish professor said, well, can you speak Spanish? Here's a little blonde girl um, rattling off Spanish with a Colombian accent. And uh, it kind of set the professor back. And she says, let's test you. And uh, after four classes, uh, she earned her bachelor's degree in Spanish. <laughs> so she actually wound up with two degrees. And um, you would think she'd be in education right now, but she wants to be an entrepreneur. And she and her husband, who is a captain in the Marine Reserves, a uh, tank captain, they uh, run their own business training service dogs for disabled people. Wow. Um, and they're very successful at it. Our youngest daughter uh, went to school at, you know, at um, Lindenwood University, a private college in Missouri. You'll see a theme here. Both girls wanted to go where it snowed. They've never seen it snow, so they both wound <laughs> up into uh, cold climates. We'll find out if that was uh, <laughs> later a mistake or, or if they ever stay in cold climates. But um, our youngest daughter went to school and got a degree in criminal justice. She's always interested in criminal justice, and right at this moment, she's in the finishing up the police academy in San Jose. Wow. And did either one of them have an interest in sailing? They looked at sailing as a mode to get somewhere. Uh -huh. They didn't see it as a sport. They just saw it as, uh, where are we going next? And let's take Chewbacca and put her sails up, and let's go. So let me change the question. Do either one of them have an interest in, in traveling and exploring? And they both like to travel, and they both love the outdoors. They love animals. They just like exploring the world. They like talking to different kinds of people. I think they have a high degree of empathy mm -hmm. and a real world view. So... Uh, and I think that's helped them out, like, throughout college, and it'll help them out throughout their life. I don't know if either one will buy a sailboat, but they certainly love to travel and explore new places. So I think they must get that from their upbringing. I mean, I was having a conversation with a friend who's on this podcast, actually, who's a surfer. 
And I said I really related to his sport because it, for him it was a way to see the world and to travel. Mm -hmm. And that's how I see sailing. I love sailing, but it's a really a way to get somewhere and meet people and explore Well, and it's a way places. of traveling without a suitcase. I mean, it was either RVing or sailing, and we happened upon sailing first, and the Pardees were really the couple that lit the fire for us. We saw them speak, and mm. they were just so down to earth, go simple, go small, go now. That was before you were in the Pacific together? Or was it, when did this you see? This was what sparked us to do that. And yeah. so we kind of looked for a boat, and we really couldn't afford a boat. We were quite young, and so we ended up crewing for different people, which really helped us sort of decide that we loved the lifestyle. We crewed on three different, completely different boats for three completely different type of people. Um, so it taught us a lot so that when we came back, I mean, we looked at every type of sailboat there was, steel, aluminum, schooner, sloops, whatever. And, um, but Chewy just sailed right into our lives and, and the rest was history. It's funny how sometimes the right boat picks you. As soon, we had a really good friend, well, he, we crewed for him uh, from Tahiti to Long Beach, and his big thing was, when you guys find a boat, your heart will skip a beat. You will know it, and you should always love the boat that you row up to. So when Chewbacca sailed in, I thought, oh my gosh, do you th uh, my heart skipped a beat. You just knew. I, I just knew. So I guess that's maybe not technical advice, but it worked. Sometimes you have to go with your gut. First, I want to establish for people where you were cruising. You spent, uh, you left from San Francisco Bay, correct? Mm-hmm. And we went with the Baja Haha down to Cabo San Lucas. And then we kind of struck out on our own. Inevitably, because of the weather patterns, people end up kind of being in the same places at, you know, the same month. So we would mm. see the same people. We never really buddy-boated with anyone, but we would tend to see kind of the same people. Um, some families we ran into and saw quite a bit. The cruising community is just amazing because everyone is going through the same thing you are, pretty much at the same time. All the newbies are kind of starting in Mexico and then either going down to El Salvador for hurricane season or going up to Baja. And we chose to go up to the sea. And the Sea of Cortez. Yes, the okay. Sea of Cortez. And that's where we sort of ironed out a lot of how we ran the boat and our routines, who anchored, who drove the boat, we sort of got used to everything for those many months up in the sea. We practiced anchoring. We could see our anchor, which really helped later on when it was murky and we couldn't see the anchor. A true confession was we had gotten just about all the way down from San Francisco to San Diego. And um, even though we were sailors prior We'd never anchored Chewbacca, which that, that's, a, that's a true confession. We've actually never threw the anchor off the rollers. 
into the sea because we sailed around the bay uh, during the day, picked good weather to learn in, picked crappy weather to learn in, and we'd go down outside the, the bay and we'd sail out in the open ocean, but we were always back at night and tucked back into the slip. So we never had a real opportunity to try the anchor out. I'd anchored many times in the South Pacific with April standing in the cockpit watching, so I assumed that she knew how we anchored. Uh, you don't make assumptions. So we got down to San Diego and it was time to actually try our anchor out for the first time. And uh, I was driving the boat and April muscles up an anchor that is exactly half of her body mass. Oh, man. And uh, she says, uh, where do you want it? And I put the boat into reverse to give it a little stop nudge. And uh, she about went over the side of the boat. So when she says, well, we practiced a lot, well, what we practiced a lot was we had to define our roles. And one of the roles was without a windlass, that meant I had to go out on the front and do the muscle work of picking the anchor up and throwing it over and bringing it in by hand. Well, April got to learn how to maneuver in the tight anchorages and steer. So we were, this was a whole journey of defining what roles we felt comfortable in doing. Yet we each had to be able to do each other's roles, but we, we did come into a, an easy groove of who could do what and who felt most comfortable doing what. And I'm sure it's also an, uh, the girls learning roles as well. And that must have changed as they grew over time. When the girls came on the boat, uh, and we day sailed quite a bit with them before because we wanted to make sure that they understood uh, the safety aspects of sailing, and uh, they were pretty much content passengers. They would go along, and they would make snacks, and they would come up, and they would, you know, like look up at the sails, and that's how they grew up on a moving sailboat and through not a, a formal introduction, but just through osmosis, they began to pick it up slowly. They became the helpers. They tended the lines. Uh, pretty soon, they're up there looking at the telltales and saying, you know, it's time that we trim the mainsail. They picked it up slowly, but it wasn't like a forced lesson, so it was just kind of an organically grown uh, way. So over 10 years, we started out with two little passengers, and we wound up with... Um, two very capable crew. So to continue your trip, you were in the Sea of Cortez for, for how long? So we spent the whole hurricane season up in the Sea of Cortez, and then when it started getting nippy. Nippy down to what, 70? Yeah, nippy. <laughs> it, 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 got, it got nippy to where um, we would uh, say, like, well, let's, let's not get into the water until after lunch instead of getting the water before breakfast. <laughs> uh, we would uh, we decided to to go on push down further into Mexico and when we by the time we got to Acapulco we again had to make the decision this is almost a year later do we traverse back north or do we continue on south into Central America and I want to stop you just for a second because you write about this in the book and I love how you write about the decision making points talk to me about how your family made decisions well, the, the main decision was, are we still having fun? Do we still like what we're doing? And when we made decisions, I mean, I think the girls really understood much more maybe than a land-based family about all the decisions you have to make every day. 
about, you know, provisioning and do we need any more cash and, uh, you know, what needs to be fixed. And route planning was a big decision. We would talk about where we wanted to go, how we plotted it out. We would explain to them if we were making a passage that we were going to be the first night here, the second night here, showed them on the chart. But the kids were always aware that their parents talked about these decisions, what to do, where to go, how to stay safe, and um, that it was kind of a family thing. And even when we came back and, and started a land-based life, I think they knew more about budgeting and kind of planning for things more than kids that are like in the house but not such a small house that they hear everything their parents are discussing. I think it was very important for the kids to feel that they were part of this journey, that they were involved in the family meetings. And so we had family meetings to decide if everyone was happy at this anchorage, when it was time to go, uh, when it was, let's stay a little bit longer, do you guys want to do some land trekking? Uh, they had a full say in that they had a full vote in it. Now, not to say that the captain couldn't override them, <laughs> but um, the, the, key, the key thing that we asked is everybody having fun. And now there are moments that you are not having fun. There are moments that you are terrified out of your skin, but that wasn't uh, a cause to call it quits. And the girls realized that there was an overall feeling of, yeah, we're having fun. Yesterday was terrible, but overall, we're having fun. Let's continue. So you came to that decision point, head back north or head south, and what was the decision? The decision was at the hurricane season, uh, during one of our family meetings, do we want to go back and revisit some of the places we've been, or do you guys want to venture off into, for us, uncharted territory? And... Um, for me, it was a pretty easy decision. I wanted to go out and see some new uncomfortable things, some things that would push us a little bit, be in some t to some new situations. The girls were young, and you know how young kids are. They're like, yeah, let's roll. But uh, there was one dissentant vote. I kind of like com being comfortable, and doing really new territory was kind of hard for me. So I sort of wanted to trace steps back to familiar anchorages and, you know, that where you go in and you go, oh, okay, I remember we anchored over here last time. And you had found some spots you really loved, right? We found some places I could have stayed forever. I mean, the sea was just magical and isolated, but a lot of natural beauty, uh, a lot of snorkeling, a lot of exploring. But um, so I was kind of outvoted. But as, you know, as with anything, once we got underway and started exploring further south, I became more comfortable. Uh, you know, there were other people we knew ahead of us. There were people behind us. You know, you listen to the cruiser's net and people say, oh, this is really great. You got to come here. I have, no, I have no regrets. I mean, it all worked out wonderful. Part of my trepidation was probably the Gulf of Tawanapec. 
And where is that? And that's the crossing from the end of Mexico across to Guatemala. And it is, you know, cruisers always talk about all the terrifying capes, Punta Mala, Gulf of Tehuantepec, the Papagayos, and you can pretty well work yourself up into a tizzy thinking about this. And cruisers also have a habit of really analyzing. Oh, if I cross this way, or I could do it this way. So anyway, it turned out that that crossing, we watched the weather. We were very careful. Um, It ended up that our crossing of the Tuanapec was like a mill pond. And I think we put 53 continuous hours on the engine because I wasn't about to sail in the middle of that. It was like, let's just get across. Let's just do it. (laughs) And we ended up doing a rum line just straight across, and it was magnificent. So for me, sometimes I would think, oh, my gosh, did I really enjoy that because I worked myself up into a frenzy over it. But I think over the years, we became more and more comfortable with picking up, planning a route, doing the route, enjoying the journey along the way. But you mentioned there are those moments (laughs) where you were scared out of your skin. And you write candidly about some of those moments in the book. Um, Sometimes when you felt like you almost lost Chewbacca. There were those times. We could predict some of the challenges that we were headed into, there were several points, uh, puntas, on the, on the way down to Panama that you had to cross. Uh, actually, the first one we crossed was Point Conception, just outside of Santa Barbara, and we were scared out of our wits at that because there was a full-blown gale uh, happening uh, just prior to our crossing, and we sat it out in Port San Luis and waited for the gale to pass, mm-hmm. and it did eventually and we carried on and at that time we realized that the sailor with the most time gets the best weather Mm -hmm. so unlike some of our cruise other cruising friends that were on a schedule we had no schedule in which made things a lot safer so the the sailing of the crossing dangerous points or making long passages we felt we could control that what was scary was things that we couldn't control, uh, an anchor line, uh, bridle unraveling at night, and it's like, why are we drifting? Probably the scariest moment in our whole travels was when we uh, were trying to set an anchor, and we knew we were too close to the reef. We, we knew that, but we just wanted to stop just for a moment, just to do a little snorkeling, maybe grab some lobsters and meet up with our friends and it was one of those moments that the engine bracket broke Uh. and we were just about dashed onto a a reef that was i mean we could have stepped off on the reef before uh as luck would have it let's knock on wood that uh, a passing fisherman uh, in his ponga uh, sensed that we were having some problems and he came by and within feet of us losing our boat he threw us a line and pulled us out into the middle of the bay. And I don't think he realized what type of danger we were in because he tossed us the rope and waved us goodbye (laughs) and had a great smile on his face, and off he went. And uh, we were uh, a puddle of shaking (laughs) flesh by the end. Uh, After that, um, April had to break out her secret stash of Cadbury chocolate bar and 
I had a, I think a, maybe one finger of dark rum. <laughs> what do you recall from that? We were so incredibly lucky that that fisherman was passing by at the time he did, and we, I feel bad that we never found out who he was. We never got to thank him, but our journey could have ended just after a year if not for that. It took us, I would say, a year before we stopped dreaming about that and having some real sweaty palms whenever we would get close to something or have to go anchor somewhere. It took a while to get over that trauma. But the good thing was, is we brainstormed on what we could have done differently and should uh. have done differently. Our snorkel gear could have been organized better. Bruce's snorkel gear should have been kept separate, Could it should have been at an easy to grab place. Um, what else did we learn to do? Trust our instinct that when something didn't feel right, we would pass it up and go on. We also organized maybe our air horn, our uh, knife to cut rope. We sort of made a whole bag of, if we get in trouble, this is what we could use kind of thing. That's wonderful. It anticipated my my next question, which was, what were the learnings? And I assume that you learned throughout the whole 10 years, not only when things went wrong, but even when things went well, looking back and saying, oh, we did that well, we, we, that's how we want to do it again. What, what were some of the main learnings that you would, or advice that you would give to people? One of the first learning, uh, learning sessions we had besides April almost going overboard with the anchor and readjusting that situation was we had never really learned how to take a dinghy through the surf and we mm. thought it how, how hard can this be they never talk about that in the cruising seminars at uh, Jack London Square or anything yeah. so um, I think one of the learning situations we had was we jumped in the dinghy headed for the beach in Baja and uh, are coming down the coast of outside coast of Baja and we had were woefully inadequate uh, with our dinghy prep we had the wrong size dinghy we had a weed whacker size engine the only thing we had going right was our smiles on our face and our you know our bright matching t-shirts <laughs> we uh, hit the beach in a roll and we tumbled that uh, dinghy and uh, it was like a, a, the most scary circus ride you've ever had, except uh, luckily none of us got hurt. And, and, and that, was, that was an amazing part. But as a, as a learning curve, we learned that there were some things that we didn't have the proper skills for. There were some things we didn't have the proper equipment for. Hmm. And as we got a little bit more seasoned, we not only changed what we had as far as gear-wise, we gained some new skills and hopefully we pass some of those skills on to the newer cruisers that were just coming up the, the year following us. And like, oh my gosh, did you try this or have, have, you, have you done that? So hopefully uh, as a payback for everybody that mentored us, maybe we became a mentor to other people. Well, this book actually is a wonderful lesson on a lot of those things that you don't get taught in the cruising seminars because you go through all of that. You talk about the roll, rolling dinghy. You talk about anchoring too near the surf. Tell me about writing this book and the process of writing the book. Hmm. Well, when we first got back, I didn't have 
any time to even think about writing a book. And then when Quincy went away to college, all of a sudden I wasn't like shuttling lacrosse players to here and there, and I had this time on my hands. So we had uh, saved all of our emails. We had kept a ship's log. We had kept journals. We had all the Latitude 38 articles. We had just had a lot of writings. And so we got together and we sort of sketched out maybe a skeleton of a book. But it was, uh, it included all of our crewing experiences plus all of our family sailing. And so we, I mean, we just basically thought of chapters and just started typing and brainstormed about what people would want to know most how to uh, based on the questions that people would ask us every day like how did you homeschool how did you save money to do this how were you able to do this why did you do it when you did that magic age for the kids and our parents kind of that window of opportunity mm-hmm. and then uh, I kind of read up on how you publish a book, how you find a literary agent. Oh my gosh, I just spent weeks creating these query letters. And as luck would have it, when the book was pretty well written, I saw this Seaworthy Publications, and I didn't know where to send my query letter to. So I thought, oh, I'm just going to call. And then I can get a name, because they say you never send an email without a name. So the publisher answered the phone. <laughs> and I explained to him that, you know, we were, had cruised for 10 years, would be he'd be interested in our story. And so we talked for a while, and he said, send me a few chapters. So I did, and he wrote back and said, oh, I like what I'm, what I'm reading. And it looks like the like these chapters are well written, and I thought, whew, okay, being an English major, I was under, you know, I'm like, oh, good. And, um, but he, and so I ended up, I think, sending him the entire book, and he's, he wrote back and said, you know, this is way too long. I want like 83,000 words, and you have, what was it, 200,000 or something. And so he said, can you guys trim this down? So we did. We just took a red pen. It is hard to cut, but we thought, okay, people are most interested in families sailing. How Mm -hmm. did you do that as a family? So then we sort of decided we could do some flashbacks from our crewing, and that would be a way to cover some of our adventures crewing as flashbacks, because we did go some places crewing that we later took our kids to, Mm -hmm. which was really amazing to explore Guatemala as a couple in our late 20s and go back and do the same kind of trip with, in our 40s, with our two children. Tell me what you think you gained as a family. How did it change the four of you as a family unit? Well, I had a real, I think we all grew. I grew because I became a real partner for Bruce on the boat. I mean, we were always partners, uh, did everything together, 
shared a lot, but on a boat, I mean, I really had to learn how to navigate, how to be more than just like a spouse on the water. And I think uh, the girls definitely learned how to be responsible because if they didn't tie up the dinghy right and it drifted away, we couldn't afford to go buy another one. Um, and they knew, I mean, I remember coming into the San Blas Islands and Kendall's up the mast, kind of guiding through Bruce through the pass, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, my 15-year-old is telling her dad, go to Portmore, go to Starboard, you know, because she's got a great view of the watercolor and everything from where she is. And so we learned how to trust each other. And I'm sure the girls learned how to be more self-reliant. They definitely learned how to entertain themselves at a really early age. Now, we didn't have television when we were living on land, but they, you know, they had to learn how to read and amuse themselves and play with their figurines and kind of come up with crafts and things like this while we were sailing. Um, because, uh, you know, when they were small, they would come up on deck and harness in. They always wore uh, a harness and clipped in. But a lot of times during, you know, a day sail or whatever, they'd be below playing. Uh, so they, they, they never, in other words, they never asked us, oh, what, are, what do we do next? Or they never said, oh, we're bored. There was always something that they could do to keep amused. And when they were on deck, they could look at the weather, look at the clouds, look at the, if we had dolphins or whales or whatever was happening. So I think they found joy in the simplest of pleasures and learn to like being with themselves. Bruce, how do you think it changed your relationship as a family? You, you know, it's uh, probably not normal in, in a typical American family that the kids see so much of their dad. Um, there's some families that the dad goes to work, there's some families that the mom goes to work, but there's probably not many kids that get to spend that much time with both parents. I, I think that it maybe affected, uh, affected the kids that they just grew up being, uh, knew that their time that parents were spending an important amount of time with them. They were they, invested in them. And maybe of anything of the kids, if they hopefully if they got a feeling that they knew that they were important enough to have time invested in them how it affected me as, as a dad was I took this as a great gift that I got to spend a chunk of time, whether it was, you know, a, a week's vacation focused on them or whether it was a two-month sabbatical or whether it was a year or, in our case, 10 years uh, to spend focused on, on your family. Um, I am sure that we're going to look back on this and say, you know, that was a that was a great investment. There's a question that comes up in so many people's mind, and I'm sure you've been asked it before. Like, how did you financially make this happen? 
And there's a chapter in the book called Simple Pleasures. And it kind of addresses that question. And I'd love you to tell a short version of that story. Either one of you. Simple Pleasures is actually the name of a boat. And it's an ironic tale that uh, we had met this boat and they were a large power yacht, motor yacht. And uh, we got to be neighbors with them in one of the marinas and they invite us on board their boat. And we had an enjoyable evening, over the top evening. And uh, as we were talking with them and uh, in being green with envy over their beautiful boat, their oriental rugs, the stand-up refrigerators that we were, back on our boat, we had a, a, a camper ice box that literally had ice in it. It, it was amazing, different perspectives, and, and it really drove home that, uh, and we had an enjoyable evening with them, but they uh, were having a great time themselves, I think, on their, on their venture, but they were headed home, and they'd only been out for one year, and their shocking moment was, to us, was, how can you guys afford this? How, how can you afford to be out there cruising? At that time, we were probably gone three or four years, and we had no end in sight of when we would stop cruising. And uh, we had to stand up. We were three stories up and looking down on our little sailboat, and we, we pointed to that boat, and we said, that's our sailboat. And it, it kind of drove home the fact that we were both in the same part of the world. We were both enjoying the same anchorages, uh, yet we were living a totally different world. I'm not saying their world was different, bad, or our world was, was different. We, we were living different realities, but um, for our reality, it allowed us to stay away for uh, an extended period of time. And not, uh, unfortunately, they were sad that they had to end their, their trip so soon. April, I really love the last part of this chapter. I'm just going to ask you to read the last two paragraphs. After finishing a delicious gourmet meal accompanied by an excellent California Cabernet dessert and coffee, it was time we returned to our beloved Chewbacca. We took an extra stroll along the docks, walking silently hand in hand into the balmy night, and finally returned stepping into our tiny cockpit. Bruce went below while I stopped to take it all in. Is this my life? I ducked into our cramped living space, lit by a single 12-volt bulb. My galley was the size of a phone booth. My ceiling was four feet high, and our kitchen table could hold four dinner plates, if they were all touching. I stood silent for a while, then heard Bruce and the girls giggling in their shared berth. I gazed around at our humble little abode. Yes, this is my life. My momentary envy instantly evaporated, and I realized that I was never more in love with our little boat and our cruising life than at, at that moment. I felt we were the most fortunate family in the world, even after spending an evening aboard a luxury yacht, ironically named Simple Pleasures. Thank you. I love that. I can't think of a more perfect note to end on, but I do want to ask you if there's anything else that either one of you want to touch on that we haven't talked about. I was thinking, um, some people asked us how we both lived with each other 24-7. Mm -hmm. 
And I think one thing that's important if someone's considering taking time off with their family or going cruising, that it both has to be a mutual dream. Like we both knew we loved cruising, we loved the lifestyle. So when we set out, I wasn't just coming along as like a, you know, a, a participant. I was willingly coming along. And we did meet cruisers that, you know, the, the wife or the husband was just um, a, a companion, but not really invested in what they were doing. So I think that's part of the reason why we lasted so long, was it was a mutual dream. I, I think one, one takeaway, if anybody can take something away from our ventures or our book, is that anybody can do an adventure of their own. And it doesn't matter if it's going away uh, on a big sailing trip, uh, doesn't matter if it's climbing Mount Everest, doesn't matter if it's climbing Mount Diablo, or I want to train for a, a, a marathon, or I want to just start walking around my block. Whatever it is, you should live your dream. And if that takes making plans to do it, that's what it takes. Life's short. Live your dream. Thank you both. It has been really a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having us. If you'd like to learn more about April and Bruce, head over to their website, setsailandliveyourdreams.com. That's setsailandliveyourdreams.com, all one word. You can see pictures of April and Bruce and Kendall and Quincy there and purchase a copy of the book. You can also find the book on Amazon. If you'd like to meet Bruce and April in person, they'll be guest speakers at REI in Concord, and I believe the Berkeley REI as well in the near future. You can get details on those events also on their website. That's it for this week's show. Thanks again for listening. And if you have any questions or suggestions for people I should have on the podcast, please reach out to me at outthegatesailing at gmail.com outthegatesailing at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Until next week, smooth sailing.